So Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the text before us today. I pray you'd give us the ability to understand it, to know what you meant to say to us through Paul, and to transform us as we study who you are in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the sermon title this week is The Law Does Not Invalidate the Promise. That's the most obvious thing Paul is saying here. But it is a tricky passage, so we're only taking three verses because I want to explain it and hopefully make sense of it. Um, so you might remember two weeks ago we did How Did You Receive the Holy Spirit? And that was Galatians 3, 1 through 4, where Paul was basically saying, you know you received it by faith, so why are you now trying to obey the law as if you need the law to complete that? And he said famously in, in chapter 3, Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And that question becomes a theme throughout all of these verses. And then last week we looked at how are you being perfected, and that was verses 5 through 14. And so today, again, the law doesn't invalidate the promise. And so Paul begins in verse 15 by talking about human relations, which isn't the best translation in the NASB. Um, the ESV says, to give a human example. And other translations have a different way of saying it. He's basically saying, I'm going to give you an example from what you see among humans, among people with contracts. Even in a, in a human contract, once you ratify it, you can't pretend like it doesn't exist, and you also can't modify it. And so what he's getting at, and this is the same thing today, if you have a contract, that contract is settled, you sign it, you date it, um, you can't then say later on, I didn't sign that, I didn't agree to that. And you also can't add to it or modify it unless you amend it. And the amendment is a separate document, new dates, new signatures. So then when you're referring to that, you would no longer say according to the original contract. You'd say according to the amendment on this date, this. So that original contract, once ratified, is a contract. And that's kind of what he's getting at here. So in the notes... When you modify an existing contract, you get a new contract. So what I think Paul's referring to here is um, if God wished to amend the promise to Abraham, he would have said so in the form of some new amended covenant. And in nowhere in Scripture does God say that the promise to Abraham has been amended. That's what I think he's getting at. Um, and I will say here that there are many, many commentators who have different ideas about what all these verses mean. Um, and so this is my view. You're fully invited to do more research if you think that what I'm explaining doesn't fully explain 
what these things mean. But in this verse, verse 15, I think what he's getting at is you've got a contract, even among humans, and if once it's ratified and signed and validated, you can't really add to it unless you both agree to it and it becomes a new amendment and all that. And so I think he's talking about that because in the next verse he begins to discuss Abraham and the seed. Um, so I think what he's getting at, again, is the promise made to Abraham, which we'll get at in a second, is still valid. And we shouldn't pretend like the law has changed that. Remember how like last week, week before, Paul was saying, Abraham was righteous by faith before he obeyed any kind of law. And God gave Abraham a promise, and he believed it. And because of that belief, he was righteous. So along comes the law later on, and Paul's saying, God didn't mean for this law to replace that promise to Abraham. So righteousness is still by faith because that promise is still valid. That's what I think that Paul's getting at. So in verse 16... Can you stop clicking your pen, Noah, buddy? In verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Again, much disagreement about what Paul's talking about or what he, why he's, like the point he's trying to make. But I'll at least start here. This is the verses that Paul's talking about. In Genesis 12, Paul promised to Abraham, Paul, God promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise to Abraham, in you. And then in Genesis 22, he says to him, in Genesis 22, verse 17, I will greatly multiply your seed, singular, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then verse 18 of Genesis 22. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So back in chapter 12, it was in you, all the nations will be blessed. Then in 22, in your seed. So Paul is saying the promise was to Abraham and to his seed. So the point Paul's making here is the word seed is singular. It's an unusual argument, we have to admit, because it's clear to most people that when you talk about uh, the seed of so-and-so, it usually means their entire lineage. And so there are some translations that take some of these verses, and instead of saying, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed, they say, for example, in your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. But Paul's saying, no, the word seed here is specifically so, and it's not plural for a reason. So he's pointing out specifically the fact that this word is singular. And again, have fun reading commentators on why that is. Um, but I'll give you my idea for why it is. And most of this, this idea came from Barnes. I read a lot of commentators, and Barnes' commentary, I think I agreed with most on, on his understanding of what Paul meant by this. So you might remember that Abraham had two sons. Isaac wasn't his first son. Who was his first son? Ishmael, right. So God promised Abraham many descendants. But they had no children. They were getting old. They got impatient. So in Genesis 16, out of impatience, Sarah asks Abraham to have relations with her servant, Hagar, and have a son that way. So a son is born named Ishmael. 
But God says, that's not what I meant. That's not part of my promise to you. Now, God is gracious and he feels bad for Hagar, especially in the situation. He does bless Hagar and say to her, you will have a great nation that comes out of Ishmael. But then to Abraham, he does say, um, um, Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son and you'll call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him. So Abraham had two sons, but only one of those sons was going to continue that promise that was made. Similarly, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? They were twins. And in that situation, the promise was only extended to Jacob. In Genesis 28, verse 14, God comes to Jacob in a dream and says, In your seed, again singular, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So that promise didn't go to Esau. And now again, Jacob had 12 sons, right? The tribes of Israel. Jacob is renamed Israel, 12 sons. And yet, in Genesis 49, verse 1, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, prophesying that the Messiah will come through Judah. And similarly, further down Judah's line is a man named Jesse, and it's prophesied in Isaiah that the Messiah will come out of Jesse, and elsewhere it's through David. And so when you look at Christ's genealogy and you see those names, there were prophecies about the Messiah coming through this specific lineage. And so some would say, and I tend to agree, that what Paul is saying here is that even though God made the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed of all the world, he didn't mean every one of Abraham's descendants. Because clearly, the Messiah didn't come through Ishmael. It didn't come through Jacob's son Esau. It didn't come through, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac's son Esau. It didn't come through Jacob's 11 other sons, but through Judah. And so I think what Paul's getting at here is that seed singular, the promise made to Abraham wasn't to everybody in his lineage, but to those through whom the Messiah would end up coming. So the promise was to not all of Abraham's descendants, or Isaac's descendants, or Jacob's descendants, but only to those through whom the Messiah would come. And so the singular use of the word seed, in Paul's view here, is to demonstrate that. And so Paul then says, the seed refers to Christ, and that's in your notes. The seed refers to Christ. So, so far, this kind of makes sense. I mean, logically, it makes sense. All the nations of the earth were not blessed by Ishmael or Esau. And this is the covenant that God did made and the promise to him and to his seed. So the idea is Paul's saying the singular use of the word seed, the promises to Abraham and to this seed, meaning Christ, to show the promise only applied throughout generations to those through whom the Messiah would come. Because it's only truly through the Messiah that the promise is fulfilled. Does that part make sense? Yes. Okay. There is part that doesn't make sense yet, and I'll point it out in a second. But logically, I get what he's saying in this verse. Now let's go to verse 17. 
What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So now Paul goes back to talking about contracts, like in verse 15. In verse 15, a contract is made. You can't pretend like it doesn't exist. You can't modify it. And now here in verse 17, Paul says, the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. So it can't invalidate the promise. So clearly Paul is calling this promise to Abraham a contract and saying the law that came later doesn't invalidate that. But if you're like me, maybe you're struggling to see the connection between this argument and the seed discussion. Because I can get both separately. I can see what Paul is saying. Okay, yes, the promise came first. The law is something separate, so it doesn't invalidate the law. I get that. And I can see how when God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, it wasn't to the entire lineage, but just to specific ones. But how do those two ideas connect? What is Paul really getting at? Well, I think the next verse, verse 18, I hope, gives us clarity on that. Verse 18 Oh, sorry. So in your notes, that was one of the questions. The law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. Okay, so verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. All right, so the whole topic here seems to be law versus promise. Remember how previously Paul made the point that Abraham was called righteous before he was even circumcised and just by faith. And then in verse 17, Paul says, the law through Moses didn't come till 430 years later. So if we come back to the main topic of this letter, the fact that there was this heresy taught in Galatia that Christians had to obey the law of Moses in order to be righteous. If we take all that together, what does that have to do with this single versus plural seed? I think this is the point Paul's making. Try to follow this. I think this, is, I think this is where he's going. God gave a promise to Abraham. Abraham tried to fulfill it in his own flesh by having a child with a servant, Hagar. God rejected that. God then gave him a son through his wife, and that was a child of promise. And throughout the entire generations where the Messiah came from, the promise to Abraham was by his own doing or by God's doing? God's doing. He tried himself, right? He got impatient. He tried himself. He did something in his own flesh, had a child over here, and God says, no, you're not going to make this happen on your own. And then he does it. Now, fast forward to Galatia, and it goes back to the same verse, where Paul says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? He's saying, God gave you a promise. The Messiah came, fulfilled the promise, and the promise now is, by faith alone you are saved by grace, not of works. And now, they're trying to obey the law as if by works they can complete it. And Paul is saying that's no different than Abraham trying to have a child with Hagar to, to, to jump God's plan ahead and to make things happen in his own flesh. That's what I think Paul is getting at. When Abraham and Sarah become impatient and they seek to force God to fulfill his promise their own way, that's the same as if we now seek to earn righteousness by works 
instead of faith. So God won't allow that. He has promised us forgiveness and salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah, and that's the only way to be righteous. If we attempt to be righteous in our own flesh, that attempt is rejected. That's not part of the promise. It is only through one seed, the Messiah. So again, these are challenging verses, but I think that's the connection that I made between the the seed, not plural, but singular, and this whole thing about law and righteousness. And I hope that helps you understand. So it seems like Paul's continuing to make this argument that he made in verse 3 about having begun in the flesh, now completing it, or trying to complete it, and you're having begun in the spirit, now trying to complete it in the flesh. Because the Galatians had believed the gospel. And if you're a believer, you've believed the gospel. And that's led to your salvation and your righteousness and your justification and your forgiveness. It's all been done. We talk about the finished work of Christ being declared righteous. The word justified, just as if I never sinned. I like that. And now... Oftentimes, so the Galatians were doing this, and oftentimes we might do this, we might begin to think that we have to do certain things to keep that grade. Remember that question about the A, keeping the A? We think we've got to do certain things to keep that, or else we could lose it. And I want you to know, in very clear terms, that God is not interested in sharing this work with you. The work of your salvation, the work of your righteousness, God's not interested in sharing that. He wants all the glory for himself in that. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about partnering with God, and I want you to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. Because in terms of our great commission, we are called to share the gospel, and God has delegated that to us, right? Christ trained us, and he sent us out. He still provides for us. He leads us. And if anyone gets saved, that is him doing the work. But he's asked us to be his spokespeople for the gospel. So you could say in that sense, We're partnering with God in that. Be careful that you don't think, because in many partnerships, that means equality. We're not equal with God, but you could say we're partnering with God in that. But we don't partner with God in our salvation. We don't partner with God in our righteousness. We don't partner with God in our forgiveness. That's completely his work. Okay. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you, who's that? Who did that? Who began the good work in you? All right. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So back to the question is, how are you being perfected? You aren't doing it. He began the work. He's perfecting the work. Like we always say in our, in our benediction in Jude, verse 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You will struggle in life. You may have uncertainties, even doubts. You might sin. You might be tempted in ways you wish you weren't tempted. And you may feel like you should have known better or done better. Romans 7 talks about this. Even Paul the Apostle, I remember talking with somebody once who was like, 
it was amazing. I was talking to this person, they were feeling very condemned, and they were like, shouldn't I by now be past feeling this condemned? And I said, how long have you been a believer? And they gave me the, the, the years. I did the math, it turns out that when Paul wrote Romans 7, he was a Christian exactly as long as this person had been. It was kind of a cool connection. And he, in Romans 7, talked about how, like, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He just, you know, just struggles with the sin. So you might have that. And what are we supposed to do with that? We know we're saved. We know we've been forgiven and all that. But then if we keep sinning, we keep getting tempted, we keep struggling, what do we do? Should we feel condemned? Should we begin to question our salvation? Should we think God's giving up on us? Should we feel like we can't be forgiven until we spend a lot of time feeling really, really bad first? I used to do that. I needed to feel a lot of remorse before I felt forgiven. And I would say no to all those questions. The worst thing we can do when we fall is stay down. Because when you stay down, what are you not doing? getting up, or walking. And the Christian life is a walk. In Ephesians, it's, you know, talks a lot about walk worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Later on in Ephesians 5, it's like, walk as children of God. Walk in the light. It's a walk. And when you fall down and stay down, you're not walking. So the worst thing we can do is, when we fall, we stay down. The worst thing we can do is think we have to convince God to forgive us. The worst thing we can do is question our salvation every time we sin. So what does God require when we sin? Yes, 1 John, one, I'm sorry, so the, one of the notes, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. That was one of the questions on the page. The next thing, 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So don't pretend like you never sin. But verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's required of us when we sin? Confession. Or repentance, same idea. You acknowledge it before God. And he just says, here's more grace. Here you go, I forgive you. If you sin, don't stay down. This is on your notes as well. If you sin, don't stay down. Repent and keep going. Get up and finish the race. God is with you, and his mercies are new every morning. And just don't forget that this is God's work. He can keep us. He can perfect this work he started in us. Having begun in the Spirit, let's not try to perfect ourselves in the flesh. Or in the example from Abraham and Sarah, let's not become impatient with God's work in our life and begin to try to force it by doing things on our own. God's promises have nothing to do with what we can do in our own strength. He's going to get the entire glory for this thing. So let's keep trusting and relying and desperately depending on God's grace. And let's get up and keep moving. Don't stay down.